Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. So, so great to have Ben and Emma with us and also to welcome back Rose from Vietnam. Back. Welcome, Rose. Nice to have you back. Rose has been away for a few months, uh, just visiting family in Vietnam, and uh, so it's nice to have her back with us, and, uh, and Peter too. I guess Peter's out in the back, isn't he, with, with the little one. So nice to have you back, Rose. Okay. Well, um, we are d- just beginning this new series called The Heart of the Matter, and uh, as I was just thinking about what to bring today... I really felt drawn to some of the events that uh, have been happening in our country over the last uh, few months, and particularly in our own city. It's, it's on our doorstep, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but when these things happen, I myself struggle with how am I supposed to respond to this as a Christian? What, what, Lord, how do I process what's happening here? How do I process it for myself so that I respond to you in a way that is honouring to you in all my confusion and perplexity. How do I do that? And and how do I respond to other people about it? Because actually, unless I come to a position where I have reached a settled position on this, I I, I don't know how I'm going to talk to anybody else when I get into general conversations. So, So I've been going through that. I don't know if you have. And I just then felt, well, perhaps this would be something for us to to look at together. And so we're going to look at just a response that Jesus had to a tragedy and how he responded. And so we're going to take as our main passage, a passage from Luke chapter 13, and it's Luke 13 verses 1 to 9. And Jesus has just been talking to the crowds about reading and interpreting the signs of the times. He's just said to them, look, you, 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 know, you know about the weather. You know when the cloud appears at this, in this part of the sky that it's going to rain. You know when the wind blows from this direction it's going to be hot because it's blowing off the desert. You know these things yourself. But you're not good at interpreting the times. And then he goes on to, to talk about uh, that a little bit more. And in particular, he addresses two tragedies that have happened within uh, the area in which that they, they lived at that time. So it's Luke chapter 13, and it's verses 1 to 9. And let's see what we can learn from the Lord Jesus in terms of how he responded. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, 
For three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig round it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, being with us this morning and uh, we thank you for uh, the opportunity we have to make a sacrifice of praise and to meet you as we worship. And we ask now that as we together uh, look around your word, look at your word, as we gather around it, that uh, it will be light to us in darkness. It will be strength to us in weakness. It will be life to us in the midst of death. And of these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, how do we respond? These events have been horrific, haven't they? We've heard, I don't know about you, just hearing this, this fire and the, and the accounts of it just unfold have just been horrific. And there's a human response we have, which is... Uh, I can't even. I haven't got the words to describe it. I, I don't know about you, but just hearing those 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 family members and friends who talked about having phone conversations with people in flats, and and them suddenly coming to a point where they all realise we're not going to get out, and it, and it, 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 it's, it, it, there are no words to describe it, are there? And the last thing that I feel it's right to do is to somehow use something as horrific as that as some sort of teaching point for us in that type of distanced way. But Jesus here actually uses the events that have happened around him and tragedies that people bring to him and say, what about this, to guide us in terms of how we should and could respond. It's important to also say that this is only part of the picture because when we, when we look at this scripture, we might initially think, gosh, this seems pretty harsh, actually. But we also know, don't we, that from the, from the rest of the Gospels, that Jesus was full of personal compassion for people who were going through suffering. We know that when he sees a widow who has lost her only son, he reaches out and raises that son from the dead. He acts So although this might not seem like Jesus is acting with compassion, actually in a minute I think I'll point to the fact that this is probably one of his most powerful forms of compassion in what he's saying. We know that actually he did deal with people and individuals with great compassion. And that also should be a guide to us in terms of how we respond. So how does Jesus respond? Well, I think there are three three things I just want to pull out briefly from this passage. The first one is that Jesus engages with the news of these events and he doesn't avoid it. He doesn't avoid it. Now, actually, I think sometimes in the church that we've been guilty in our type of church of really not responding to national crises like this when they come up. I think the the Church of England's very good at doing it. I can tell you now that across the country, the vast majority of Anglican churches will be praying for those affected by that fire. In our kind of church, when we went through sort of renew, the renewal of the church, moving away from tradition, 
when it, when it was just tradition for tradition's sake, one of the things that perhaps we were guilty of was actually not addressing and recognising that when something national happens like this, we, we should address it. We shouldn't avoid it. And actually, that's exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't avoid it. He engages with it. And I've realised as I looked at this, I felt convicted myself because we live in a generation where more than any other generation, it's so easy to avoid it. I tell you how it is. It's so easy because when I've had enough of it, I'll switch over to a comedy programme on the television. When I've had enough of this, I'll just switch over to something that will entertain me and make me feel a bit better. To be honest with you, there were times through the coverage of this that that's exactly what I did. I thought, I can't, I don't think I can take any more. I'll I'll turn it over. I'll I'll watch that program about nature. That will make me feel better. I'm going to watch Spring Watch. Yeah, that will make me feel better. Now, I'm not saying that we should overly emphasize or in an unhealthy way focus on events like this. But there is something that Jesus models here for us about not avoiding issues like this when they come. Not switching the remote button too quickly. It's a temptation for us and it is for the, as it is for the world. So he sort of models for us not avoiding but engaging with it. That's the first thing he does. He engages with it. The second thing that Jesus does is he interprets it. So what Jesus doesn't do is just say, yes, it was terrible, wasn't it? But moving on to my agenda, no, he uses this and he interprets it. In other words, Jesus says, look, there's a lens, there's a kingdom lens that you need to look through when things like this happen. There is another lens other than the lens of the world. What doesn't Jesus do? It's interesting, isn't it? So the first incident that they talk about is Pilate, who, from other writings that we have around, that we know about Pilate, from other ancient writings, he was a cruel man. Sometimes we can actually feel sorry for him when we read the, 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 the account of the crucifixion, because we think he was trying to save Jesus, and, oh, it must have been difficult, and yes, there was probably there's an element of that. But actually, other things that we know of Pilate show us that he was a cruel man. What doesn't Jesus do? Well, what he doesn't do is he doesn't, he, he doesn't vilify Pilate and he doesn't blame. He doesn't begin to blame. He doesn't pull out who's responsible for this. He doesn't say, look, these are the occupying forces and we've got to stand up and fight against the occupying forces who are treating our people with injustice. He doesn't do that. He chooses not to do all of those things. And actually, if you just listen to some of the, uh, the coverage of what's happened, that's exactly what happens, that people begin to, to understandably look for a cause. They look for who to blame. Who's to be held to account for this? What are we going to do about it? Now, all of those things are important, and that's why we have authorities. That's why we have governments and councils, because we pass that responsibility onto them, and if they don't do it well, yeah, we need to hold them to account. But actually, Jesus doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do that? Because it would seem legitimate, wouldn't it, for him to say that was just outrageous, that those occupying forces have treated our people like that. But he doesn't. Why doesn't he do it? 
Well, I think one of the reasons that he doesn't do it is because he actually wants them to focus on the most important message that comes out of this suffering when you look through the lens of the kingdom. He doesn't want them to be distracted because that's what happens so easily when things like this happen. We become distracted. We look at other things and actually there's another lens through which we should be looking. And Jesus wants us to look through another lens. So it's important for us when things like this happen to pause and to say and expect that God will help us to look through a Christ-like lens at what's happening. C.S. Lewis, lots of us know C.S. Lewis, wrote the Narnia stories. Lots of us, or a number of us in this room, will love the writings of C.S. Lewis. And one of, perhaps one of his most famous sayings is about pain. And uh, he says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The Bible says, when times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider. And Jesus is doing that. He's modeling for us that it's right to pause and to consider. And he pulls out then what he feels is the, if you like, the main message from this. He points towards, actually, the desperate and deepest need of every human being walking the planet. And he says to the people who are telling him the story about the Galileans, and then he brings in the story about the tower falling on innocent people, he says, actually, do you know what? You are no different to them. He doesn't explain why those individuals die in the manner that they do and at the time that they do, because actually he knows that his, if he does, his hearers will have a reason to become fixated on that. Oh, perhaps they'd done something really bad, that's why it was them. But he doesn't want them to be fixated on that because he knows that they will miss the key message for, for every survivor, including us and those we know and love, of an event like this. And that key message is that every human being faces the prospect of being cut off entirely from God unless we repent and believe. And that word perish that Jesus uses actually is a very strong word. It means to be cut off, to be destroyed and cut off. It's not just that you perish, that you stop living. He's acts a very strong word about being cut off. And Jesus is saying there, do you know what, there's a really important message here that actually, unless you repent and believe, you also are in danger of being cut off eternally from the presence of the Father. And so he, he avoids going down other roads where people will get distracted and they will get fixated on other things and he pulls it back to what the main message of an event like this should be. What's the third thing he does? He urges a response. He urges a response. During the Second World War, uh, in 1940, uh, most of us who know a little bit of history will know that this country was on the brink of disaster. We had sent our troops out into France to try and stop the onward march of the German army, and it had failed. And so all of our troops, plus the Belgian and French troops, had, were being driven by Hitler 
back to the French coast. And it looked like it was going to be a complete disaster. It looked like we would lose most of our troops because uh, the onward march of, of Hitler's army was just unstoppable. And it looked like invasion. Invasion was, was imminent. And even politicians and military leaders were saying, it will be a miracle. It will be a miracle. And for the few months leading up to this, I read a, um, a note from the Notes of Parliament in February of that year. And, and one uh, member of the House of Parliament raises a question to Winston Churchill in February of that year and says, what's the Prime Minister's response to a request and for national, a day of national prayer? And basically, Winston Churchill at that point, he says, no, we're not going to do that. In fact, even the Archbishop of Canterbury at that time said, no, I'm not sure we should do that. And uh, nobody quite knows why, but there's a sense that perhaps they thought it would be bad for morale to admit that things are this desperate. But actually, it gets to a point in May when things are this desperate. And it's the king, it's King George VI, who makes a broadcast and calls the nation to a national day of prayer. And King George also says, and repentance. A national day of prayer and repentance. I think probably on that Sunday, it was probably the day of the largest attendance in church across the whole of the UK, probably from then till now. There were queues outside churches. There's a picture of, you can't see it very well, but that is a queue of people on that Sunday of prayer and repentance trying to get into Westminster Abbey. What happened was the night that they called that prayer meeting, for some inexplicable reason, Hitler gave a command to stop the army, his army, from pursuing the, the British and the Allied armies to the coast. Nobody knows why he gave that command, but the night the prayer meeting was called, the German army stopped and didn't pursue them to destroy them on the beaches of Dunkirk. It stopped. The night of the prayer meeting, a storm came up, a huge storm over France, which meant that the German air force, the Luftwaffe, was unable to take off and to bomb the soldiers. And then what happened was, it's described as unprecedented in a generation, a level of calm went uh, across the English Channel for, for a number of days. What that meant was that um, Churchill's estimate that four, we would be able to get 40,000 of our troops back increased to, to, the, to the figure that in the end we got back 348,000 of our troops. And it, and it all came off a day of national prayer and repentance. I wonder if our nation would call a day like that again. I wonder if it would now. But actually, this kind of event should call for a response from us. And it may not call for that type of response from our leaders. It may not call for that kind of response from the world. It probably won't. You'll see more of the blaming. You'll see more of the holding people to account. Not that those things don't have their place. But will you see a nation saying, we need to pray. Oh God, where have we got to? How has this type of thing happened? It's God's megaphone, but actually we should. We should pray.
If nobody else does, the church will and the church should. So, okay, here's some advice. I'm going to finish with this. What do we do when we face events like this week and other weeks? How do we respond? Here's just some practical advice that I hope is informed by Jesus' response. So here's the first one. Engage rather than avoid. Engage with others. If you've got children, model how do we engage with this sort of thing when you are talking about it as a family? Do it together. Small groups are brilliant for this, absolutely brilliant for this, when we're in community together. We don't avoid, we don't just carry on with our programme regardless. No, we engage. We engage. Number two. Thank God for the evidences of his common grace in catastrophes. You know, some of the same things that, that as human beings stir us the most are probably when we hear those messages of huge bravery, you know, firefighters going, going in, not thinking of their own safety, massive response in terms of generosity. What's that evidence of? It's not perfect, and people's motives are not always perfect either behind those things. So we mustn't get caught up with thinking, oh, isn't this just completely wonderful? Because this isn't always But actually that indicates that God has made man in his own image. And however marred and defected that might be because of sin, we still see glimmers of it when we are at our best. And what do we do when we see those glimmers? We thank him. We thank him for his common grace that even in this, even in the middle of this, there's still enough of his mark on people for them to act with mercy and courage. We thank God for his common grace. We turn it back to him. We must do. We turn our praise and our glorification back to him. We thank God for evidences of common grace. We seek a settled, godly, and biblical perspective if you and I are going to hold out any sort of authentic hope to other people when we're talking to them about this type of thing, when it happens, we've got to have that authentic hope ourselves. And to get to that point, I'm going to have to engage with the Lord about it because my first response is not always that. My first response is, why? Oh, God, why? How? Oh, God. And I don't know about you, then I see something like, like this week's news event and I think, and this is just one thing? This is replicated across the world millions of times in stories that I don't know about? Oh, God. You can be overwhelmed with it, can't you? What should we do when that happens? We should, what, what I would call regroup. When that sort of thing happens, it's important that I regroup. It's important that I, I go back to the Bible a bit and actually, one of, the, one of the things that we see modelled in the Bible is the psalmists, who constantly are doing that. Actually, why, oh God, I don't understand. They, they, they go through this process of what you might call regrouping, trying to regroup when something calamitous happens, when a personal tragedy happens in our lives. And we have to just take a moment to regroup, to come to a settled position. And once again, we need each other to do that. Because if I'm struggling with that myself, I need to come talk with you about it. Oh, and I'm str- 
and I need to get your perspective and you'll help me with that when I'm feeling like I can't, I just can't process this. Actually, once again, that's when we're together. That helps with that. So seek a settled, godly, biblical perspective. Out of that, respond. Respond. Jesus encouraged the response when he highlighted what this was really pointing towards. And there's sometimes a response for us to make. Now, sometimes that's just a personal response. That might just be a personal response where I say, God, I don't understand, but I still trust you. And please help me in any conversations that I have, Lord, to honour you and to lead other people to see what the real message of things like this is. That, that may be your response, and that may be all your responses. But we also know that down the centuries, actually, for this type of thing has provoked responses of a much more practical nature among Christians. And we know that hospitals were set up by Christians initially. We know that lots of our our charities, Dr. Bernardo's, the Shaftesbury Society, all set up by Christians in response to just awful, awful suffering. And so sometimes there might even be a response which calls for an action, and you'll know that because God will lay something on your heart about it. But in some way or another, there'll be a response. So once you've come to a settled and godly and biblical perspective on what's happened... Out of that, determine what the Holy Spirit's saying to you about how you should respond. And then finally, worship. Worship. Probably one of the most famous quotes around worship in suffering would be Job's. And we sing songs about it, written by Matt Redman. Yeah? Blessed be your name. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away and blessed be your name. Job worships. Now as I thought about that and I'm nearly done, I know it's hot. As I thought about that my reflection on that was when we use that part of the Bible we need to be very, very cautious because actually it's Job, it's the sufferer himself who says The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is Job who has just lost all his family who is saying that. So I must be very careful not to say to you in your suffering, well, do you know what? The Lord's given, the Lord's taken away. If I'm going to say that, I should be saying that through my own tears on your behalf. I should be weeping with you if I'm going to say to you, the Lord's given and the Lord's taken away. But if I love you, what I do want to do is I want with all my heart for you to come to that position yourself, where in the middle of your suffering, you are able to say, I don't get it, but the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. And blessed be the name of the Lord. What does that mean when Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord? It means he's saying, I don't get it, but you know, you are still the only name I have. You are still the only one I choose to trust. You are still the only one who I say, you're blessed, it's your name. You've done it, I don't get it, but still I'm able to say, blessed, happy is your name, blessed, Lord. In all my fulfilment, it still comes from you. Somehow, there's nothing that can make sense unless it's, it, it's in you. It, blessed be your name still. Blessed be your name. And that's, if I'm not, if I'm not suffering that myself, well, I want to, 
help you to get to that point where you're able to say that. And actually, I should probably be saying that if I'm going to say that to you through my own tears as I experience your hurt and empathise and sympathise. So yes, we do want to worship and we want to encourage others to worship, but we must do it with tenderness and compassion. You know me. We'll end with the words of a hymn. O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Within the shadow of thy throne still may we dwell secure. Sufficient is your arm alone and our defence is sure. Before the hills in order stood or earth received her frame, from everlasting you are God and to endless years the same. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be thou our guide while troubles last and our eternal home. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we uh, want to respond as your people, like Job did. Lord, we've, we're not directly going through pain and suffering, and yet to an extent we feel it on behalf of those who are. And we want to say, Lord, we don't understand it, but you give and you take away, and still you are the one who we choose to put our trust in and our hope in, and we still place our confidence in you. And we pray you'll help us to understand and interpret the signs of the times, to look at events like this, not as the world does, but through the lens of the gospel and of the Bible. We pray, Father, you'll help us in any of our conversations to be full of grace, Lord, as we talk about the hope that is ours. But help us to do it with great grace and wisdom and gentleness. But, Lord, also give us courage for those moments when a response is required. And, Lord, we pray you'll help us in all of this to fix our eyes on you, to remember that uh, nothing surprises you, that you are God and that you actually gave your own beloved son so that all who believe in him will not perish, will not be eternally separated from you, but will have eternal life. We thank you that that's our story and we pray that it might be many people's story through these tragedies that our nation has experienced in these last months. So be with us, we pray. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.